A little update uh, first also on uh, Dale. Um, you know, many of you have been asking about uh, Dale. Uh, he's uh, been hospitalized uh, about three times now, uh, different occasions in the last three weeks. And uh, Dale has been hospitalized this time uh, since Sunday night. And that, that's last Sunday night. And so it's been a full uh, of hospitalization for Dale um, and his wife Susie beside him at, at all times. She, she usually goes home, um, but then comes back to the hospital early the next morning. And uh, Dale is still battling uh, pancreatic and liver cancer. He's battling um, uh, a weakened heart. The doctor said his heart is probably down to about 30% right now. And, uh, and he's, got, he's in a lot of pain and his blood pressure spiking. So, uh, folks, we have to pray for Dale. And, and please be diligent to do that uh, because we, uh, we, we love him very much. And uh, I've said it before, I, I can't think of a man who in such a short time brought so much uh, encouragement and life to the church. They've only been here a year, and yet everyone knows Dale and Susie. And, uh, and everyone knows the encouragement that he is to us as a people. So, as we, uh, in fact, let's all, let's all stand as we open uh, this time in prayer and as we petition, petition our Lord for uh, Dale's healing. Let's pray. Lord, we just put Dale before you. And uh, Father, we, uh, we know uh, what it's like to go through these times. We've seen others in our church family and those friends of our church go through a difficult hour in the hospital like this. Uh, but Father, we are just begging you and beseeching you now. Would you please heal him? We know you can. We believe you can. And so right now, Lord, even as he sits in the hospital bed, and even as he has no idea that we are praying for him, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just invade that room and invade that cancer and that pain and take it all away. We pray, Lord, that he would be made well and that it would be miraculous and that he would come back here and have a story to tell. And then, Father, we know that that sometimes... As much as we call for this and beseech you for this, we know that sometimes uh, you, you say no to that request. And so, Father, prepare us for whatever lies ahead. We anticipate a miracle, but we will prepare for what you have for Dale and for Susie and for our church as a result of the trial that he goes through. Now, for the rest of us today, Lord, help us to keep striving with you. Help us to keep learning your word and growing in the faith. I pray that today's message on unity would be meaningful to each one of us, that it would uh, go down deep into our hearts and remind us of how important it is to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The title of this message today is that we may be one, that we may be one. This uh, title emanates from something that Jesus prayed for you. Uh, You may uh, not know it, but Jesus said a prayer for you right before he died. Um, He was with his disciples, and they were in the upper room. Uh, just before, uh, just as they were about to celebrate uh, the final Passover, the Lord's Supper. And as he was near, uh, 
the time when he would go to the cross. And Jesus had something to say uh, to his disciples, pray a hope for them, and also for us as well. Take a look at John chapter 17. In your Bibles, it's not going to be behind you. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20 through 23. This was Jesus' prayer for his disciples, and this was Jesus' prayer for you and me. He said, I do not pray for these, these disciples alone, but also for those, you and me, who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Four times. Did you catch it? Four times in those four verses, Jesus prayed the exact same thing. He said, Lord, let, let them be one. May they be one. Let them be one in us. Let them be perfectly one. Let my people be united, Jesus prayed. Let them Fused together as people. Let them join together with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let that oneness not only be for their benefit, for our benefit, but let it also be a unity that testifies to a dying world around us that something is different about this group of people. That there is something unique, something extraordinary about Christians have that they have something that the world does not have a kind of oneness and unity that can only be forged by supernatural power that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed that we would be one, a holy, united body of Christ. And together this morning, I want, I want us to means for Jesus when he says that he wants our oneness. I want us this morning to unpack what it means, Jesus' prayer, what it means for us with respect to unity. What does it mean to be a united group of Christians? What does it mean to be one? body of Christ. What does it mean a united local church? Does everyone have an outline? Grab your outline. Take some notes. Let's take a look at what the scriptures have to say about oneness, about unity among believers. You see, the authors of the New Testament had a lot to say about the nature of the unity that Jesus desires for us. Number one on your outline, number one point, the unified church, the unity of spirit, is to say one accord among each member in virtue of their regeneration by the Holy Spirit. 
I'll say it again, a unified church acknowledges the unity of spirit that is one accord among each member in virtue of their regeneration by the Holy Spirit. This principle emanates from Philippians 2.2. 2. I've listed all the scriptures on your outline. They won't be behind you, so take a look at your outline. When Paul writes this, he says, Fulfill my joy. This is our memory verse, by the way, for February. Fulfill my joy, Paul writes, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I want to zero in for just a moment on the term one accord. Go ahead and underline that in your outline. The term one accord. Really, in, in Greek, it's the word sumsukoi. Sumsukoi. It's a very unique word. In fact, it's used extremely rarely in the New Testament. Sumsukoi means united in spirit. One accord is not, not quite, doesn't quite capture it in its fullness, in fact. I would say that that's, a, that's a, a, a decent translation, but not a full translation of what the word means. It means to be united in spirit with one another. That is to say, it is to be, it is to be a kind of soulmate-like experience with each other. You know what it is to have a, a soulmate. For those of you that are married, you're, you are soulmates with your spouse, or at least that, that's what you've aspired to. Sometimes marriage is not perfect, but we aspire to being soulmates with one another. Maybe you have a really good friend, uh, a best friend, and you would look upon that friend and you would say, you know, you're one of my soulmates. We have a kindred spirit between us. There is a unity of spirit between us. We are of one accord. Paul says in Philippians 2.2, 2, that being of one accord, that, un- that unity of spirit, that it emanates from the fact that we have been born again in Jesus Christ. It emanates from the fact that we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. So the, the, a unified church acknowledges that the unity, of the, the soulmate-ness of our, of our church, the kindred spiritness of our church, that it source the recognition Holy Spirit is in every single one of us who has believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Sumsuke, united in spirit. One accord, a unified church, unity from Jesus' perspective, the oneness that he was hoping for, summed up here by Paul, is that when we would look at each other, we would go, oh yeah, there's the Holy Spirit in him. Oh yeah, I see the Holy Spirit in her. And that would be acknowledged throughout the body. Soulmates. Because of the Spirit in us. A second principle for unity in the Believing in the unity of Spirit, unified church anticipates or expects that likeness is not only possible, but a primary goal. So in the unity of Spirit that we have, 
like-mindedness is not only possible, but is a primary goal of the church. Now we come to the other parts of that same verse in Philippians 2, 2, by the way. We're not even skipping to the next verse. We're in that same verse where Paul says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one quarter, unity of spirit, and being of one mind. He says it twice there. Like-minded and in Greek. Very similar kinds of words that Paul He's saying, be of one persuasion, one mind. Think the same way toward one another. Have the same intentions. Have the same plans and mission and goals. Paul says, believing that the Spirit of God is in each one of us who have trusted in Christ Savior. Expect now. In virtue of that fact, expect that can be, not just as a, as a maybe, as a possibility, expect that the church can come to a place where we are like-minded, where it's not just a possibility, but it's a goal of the church. A unified church, believing in the unity of spirit, a unified expects, expects that like-minded possible, but a primary goal. Another verse that addresses this, 3.8. Finally, all of of one mind, having compassion of his brothers, be tender-hearted. Five adjectives over and over and over and over again. And by the way, notice how it's couched. We talked about this a little bit, actually, um, when we looked at a different Greek word, uh, didaskatos, last uh, Wednesday with the men's group on Wednesday family night, uh, we were looking at a word that was also couched as this word is here. Do you see the adjectives that surround, uh, that, that surround the term one mind in 1 Peter 3.8? Adjectives like having compassion, being as brothers, tender-hearted, courteous. Peter is saying that, by the way, one-mindedness, like-mindedness, is something that only occurs when it is coupled with incredible integrity and incredible character in the church. Care, compassion, mercy, tender-heartedness. Unity is not forced. It's not accomplished by fiat. It is... To bring people along. In fact, in, uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus about qualifications for an elder, he talked about the man being able to teach, didaskatos. A lot of people think that that just means preaching from the pulpit, that the man would be able to teach and therefore he's qualified to be an elder. Nothing could be further from the case. Every time didaskatos is used in the New Testament, it is couched in the language of being able to bring people along with you. Bring them along. Carry them with you. Don't rule and teach and lead by fiat or by force. But instead, be one who is a didaskatos, able to teach, able to guide, able to bring, with, bring others with you. That's how we accomplish unity in the church. 
1 Corinthians 1.10, I plead with you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all speak the same, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. Similar phrasing there. A third principle that uh, is speak a unified church in the, in the New Testament here. Unified church labors conscientiously to achieve perfect harmony for each and every mission and decision. A unified church labors conscientiously to achieve perfect harmony for each and every mission and decision. Now, I want to really zero in on that word labor. I'll show you why in just a moment here. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 13.11 on your outline. Paul writes, Finally, brother, and fair... Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. All right? Again, similar similar language, the one-mindedness that we're aiming for here. But here's something. Something's happened here in Paul's use of the language. You don't care so much in English because it's used uh, very... Uh, meagerly or weakly. But really, what's happened in Paul's language, he's, he's moved a bit in this one-mindedness. You see, because 2 Corinthians 13, 11, in contrast to the, to the uses of the term uh, phroneo or mind uh, in other parts of the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul uses it in verbal form, in command form. It's an imperative. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, when he says, be of good comfort, be of one mind, that is in command form. It is in the imperative. It stands of a lot of imperatives in that verse. But the fact is, it's a verb. It means it must be done. It must be worked. It must be labored for. It takes energy. It takes drive. It takes passion. When you're called upon to carry out, when there is a verb, it requires action. It requires determination. Church labor conscientiously. Perfect harmony for each and every mission and decision this is not something that's a passive endeavor it's an imperative in the new testament that kind of that kind of action that kind of determination is precisely what paul has in mind in the next verse philippians 1 27 he says let your conduct your conduct be worthy of the gospel of christ so that when i come and see you or whether i'm absent i may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's up the ante now. He's not just talked about like-mindedness as this lofty goal that, that's off in the distance. He, no, it can be accomplished. It's going to take work. But it can be accomplished in the church Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. Striving together. Fighting together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's human nature. I, I like uses this term because it's human nature to, 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 to fight, to contend for what we're passionate about. 
It's human nature to get passionate and to become determined about the things that we care about. Paul said, channel those instincts into fighting for what is truly worth it. The gospel of Jesus. If you're going to fight, fight for the gospel. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. We see this same line of thinking in the next verse in Philippians, the the bottom of page one on your outline. He says, I implore, he's talking about two women in the church right now. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored, notice the term labor, with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In, in context here in Philippians chapter 4, Yodia and Syntyche were two women in the church that were arguing. They were fighting. We don't... Paul doesn't... into the details of what it was that Yodia and Syntyche were arguing about. Speaks of the Speaks of conflict. Everyone, by the way, in the church knows about the conflict. He says, I implore Yodia and Syntyche, be of the same mind in the Lord. Be of the same mind, phronein, again in Greek, to live in harmony, to be of one accord, of one mind. I urge you also, he's speaking of some leader in the church, I urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me. The women who labored with me. Sunaltheo in Greek. Again, same term used in Philippians 1.27. Striving for the gospel's sake. Help these women who labored, who were fighting with me. Two women who once used their deep passion for the sake of the gospel, now letting those passions get the best of them, turning against one another instead of fighting for truth. A meaningless battle. As pastor, uh, you know, I get to sit uh, on all sorts of, you know, uh, groups and committees and teams here in the church and, and, and of the churches at large in the area something I, I enjoyed doing, some of the opportunities for leadership and, and with other pastors and not. And uh, I, get, I get to sit in the midst of all these committees and team meetings and whatnot, meetings, finance meetings, missions meetings, church policy meetings, whatnot. Most of the time there is harmony. Every once in a while, someone takes off. They start they start to fight to contend hard for their position sometimes that person is me not always but most of the time the energy that person expends making their point ends up being disproportionate to the importance of the issue at hand And if you challenge them while they're in the midst of expending this energy, watch out. Pascal once said, if you tell a man his conclusions are wrong, he will grow angry in proportion to his fear that you are right. If you tell a man his conclusions are wrong, he will grow angry in proportion to his fear that you are right. 
couple things about division. Just I'm going to just jump for just a second off topic. It's still in your outline. A couple things. Two warnings about division. First, look, minor disputes will arise. We recognize that. Deep schism and division have no place in the local church. On your outline there, minor disputes will arise, but deep schisms and division have no place in the local church. Paul said, I've given you a bunch of verses there. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, let there be no divisions among you. And that word divisions there is the Greek word schismata. English word schism. No schismata. No division, Paul tells the church. Jesus said, a house divided will not stand. In fact, God so intensely, intensely hates division in the church and among brothers and sisters in the Lord that it is the end of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, in, in a list, by the way, in this, in this part of Proverbs where God lists six things, six things that he hates. And then it says, yes, seven things are an abomination. The seventh, the final in Proverbs six nineteen, God hates one who sows discord among brethren. God hates it. It's something that he detests and despises. A person who would sow disharmony among brothers and sisters. And so, we know the but deep schisms and divisions, zero place in the local church. And secondly, we are to rebuke those who cause division and we're to reject them if they do not change course. Titus 3, on your outline, Paul says, avoid these foolish disputes, genealogies, tensions, strivings about law. They're unprofitable. They're useless. Reject of man after the first and the second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul doesn't say reject him outright. He says, go to him. Go to him first. Say, come on. Let's write the ship. Seeds of discord. And he says, second time, and says, come on now. Let's, let's bring back peace. Let's be reasonable. Let's not sow discord. Akin to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Take, go, go to the brother yourself. Bring someone with you. But then, three strikes and you're out. If something continues, continues and continues to argue and to divide and to contend and to fight and to fight for things that in the grand scheme of things... Wow, that's not probably worth it. Paul says, watch out for those individuals. Warn them, admonish them, and ultimately, if need be, reject them. Think about the energy, the passion that you spend when trying to make decisions. At church, at work, at school. Think about the contending, the striving, the passion that, that you have as you try to make decisions with your spouse Now compare that energy and that fight and that drive with the energy 
that Paul says you're supposed to have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That fight you just had with your spouse, that argument you just got at work, the energy that that broiled in you, the desire for your way, maybe you can think of a recent moment where that was happening. Paul says all of that, all of that energy and fight and drive and passion Direct it differently. Direct it to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. My goodness, why would you direct it anywhere else? When Paul rebuked Yodia and Syntyche, he urged them to go back to the core, to go back to the gospel. Women who labored with me in the gospel, whose names are in the book of life, Help me get their head screwed on again and to know what is really at stake here. They're talking about petty and trivial things and they should be talking about heaven and hell. Going back to a unified church. At the top, two on your outline. A unified church keeps central the gospel of Jesus Christ and filters all of its efforts through that lens. Unified church keeps central the gospel of Jesus Christ and filters all of its efforts through that lens. Are you only animated in life when it comes to committee decisions? (laughs) Oh, man. Are you only animated in life Come to your point with your spouse? Is that the only time you get passionate? Really? Channel that energy differently. Put it toward the gospel. Put half of it toward the gospel. And you'll be amazed at the impact that it has in your life. Let's aim to make decisions with one accord. That's how the early church did it. Acts 15, church unity in action. In Acts 15, I w- I'd like you all to turn there. Turn to Acts chapter 15 on your bi- in your Bibles. It won't be listed on the screen. In Acts 15, uh, we have everything we've talked about in action. And so here in Acts 15, I want us to read. And I want us to read it a little bit at length. Bear with it. But I want us to finish with a story about what church unity really looks like. And just to set it up, just, just to, just to uh, uh, set the table for a moment, Acts 15 is a situation in which Paul and Barnabas have have encountered some difficult teaching out in the field, in the mission field. They've been out preaching the gospel. And as they've been out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's been some that have been saying, well, you, you also need to be circumcised to be saved. You must be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas heard that, and they knew that that, that was not quite right. 
But instead of ruling by fiat or force, instead they decided to, to go back to church in Jerusalem and to gather the people and the leaders and the elders and the apostles together and to talk about the dispute, the argument, which was, by the way, an argument between uh, fellow, uh, many, most of whom were probably fellow Christians, fellow believers, but who had just a few different views on, on, on some of the requirements that, that might be there for, uh, for salvation. They were struggling to understand how, how things have gone from the Old Testament into the New, and, and there was dispute, there was discord. These people were, were worshiping in, in the same places. And so we pick up the story in Acts 15 in verse 4. And Paul and Barnabas have just returned to Jerusalem from the mission field. And this is what happens. Acts 15, verse 4. Read it with me in your Bible. When they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church. And the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, by the way. Notice that term, who believed. Don't mistake that. These were Pharisees, okay, very legalistic types, who happened to believe that Jesus was Messiah. Make note of that. Make note of that. And yet they, were, they had some confusion. All right, verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them too and, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Verse, now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. Now let's stop right there. I'm not going to read Peter's speech. Not going to read it. I want to just point out the scenario that's happening. Paul and Barnabas have come back to the church. Okay? In fact, let's summarize. Take a look. Uh, Well, then the disciples were received by the church. They came, back. they came back to the church and they were received. Okay, come on in. Let's talk about this. Secondly, the plaintiffs were given opportunity to speak. That is to say, the Pharisees, who believed, by the way, that Jesus was Messiah, they, were, they, they had the contention, they had the dispute. They said, add circumcision to this, to this equation. We think, we think that we should add this to the, Gentile, uh, to, the, to the works that the Gentiles need to do. Right? And so they were given a hearing. The plaintiffs were given an open hearing, opportunity to speak. Next, a time of constructive arguing was permitted. Look at verse 7 again. When there had been much dispute, there had been much dispute, there was arguing, there was contention. And then next, what happened? And by the way, an apostle, also an elder of the church, Peter. Now, I'm not going to read Peter's speech. You can do that at home if you'd like to read the details of, of just how he depressed and whatnot. But I want to jump down to verse 12. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. Then all the multitude kept silent. This is right after Peter got done speaking, by the way. Right after Peter finished, it says in verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles... And wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. 
This brings up a few more points. Number five, point five on your outline. The audience kept silent. They listened to more elders, to more leaders, to Paul, to Barnabas, to others. There was a continual mutual listening to one another. Verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, and I'll, I'll skip his speech for just a moment. Ver, uh, point six on your The congregation quietly meditated on what was said. Read again verse 13. After they had become silent, the people were sitting and listening and hearing and meditating on all that was being said, carefully comparing it with God. Seven, and another elder rose up to speak, this time James. Once again, I... I don't have an interest in reading his speech. I want to point to what happens after his speech. Look at verse 22 of Acts 15. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the entire church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren... To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. To the, to the people that have heard this dispute. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of you who went out from us have troubled, with your word, uh, you, troubled you with words, unsettled your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord, notice that, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Don't worry about the the circumcision requirement. Farewell. On your outline, point number eight. There goes Spirit-led assent among the elders and the people. There arose a pleasing, spirit-led assent among the elders and the people. Verse 22 says, It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. Verse 25 says, It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. Verse 28 says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There was an incredible didaskatos taking place. There was an incredible moment of being able to teach, able to bring others along with the leaders of the church as they rendered decision and judgment upon this matter. We close with verses 30 to 33. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, the same multitude 
that had heard this dispute to begin with, when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter, and when the people had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also, they exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Finally, point number nine, the resolution of the dispute brought encouragement, strength, and mutual edification. The resolution to the dispute brought encouragement, strength, and mutual edification. Friends, that is how you unify the church. Amen? Acts 15 is a template for the points that we've discussed today. And I want to say that, you know, on a, on a very small level, and I, I do mean a very small level, but to some degree, last Sunday, Post Bible Church, we had a little Jerusalem council. We did. We had a little time of counsel as a church. We had a time when we were considering some very, very weighty decisions. Decisions that that were spiritual decisions that were so very important. The, The decision whether or not to ordain someone, Pastor Tom, to the work of the ministry. There's fewer decisions that are more weightier than that one. The, the decision, financial decisions, financial decisions regarding our budget, how we're going to spend our money into the future, financial decisions regarding uh, some of the, the things that we were able to, to consider selling, things like a cell tower that we have on this property. We were faced with weighty decisions as a community. We were faced with legal decisions. We've been, we had commissioned a church policy team to review the threat upon churches in California in particular as religious liberty is getting time and time again squeezed and as governments and, uh, and, and you know, legislative committees are now rendering decisions that are one day going to affect the life of many churches that are not careful and that do not have certain kinds of language in their constitution and bylaws as a church. We considered extremely weighty decisions last week. We had our own Jerusalem council. And for those of you that attended the meeting, you know the results. We had 100% unanimity on every single issue. 100%. Should Pastor Tom be ordained? 100% of the people said yes. Should the budget be approved? 100% said yes. Should we sell the cell tower and consider paying off the church mortgage to be eventually debt-free as a church? 100% said yes. Should we approve the amendments to the Constitution, serious amendments, significant amendments, that will affect the way we conduct ourselves into the future as a church? 100% said yes last Sunday. May I suggest that the reason that we had such unity last week 
was not because of me or the elders forcing these decisions down our throats. It wasn't just done by fiat or by control. Neither was it done because the people are just mindless and just along for the ride. Those of you who have been in previous annual church meetings, uh, you've seen some that that have been contentious at times, and and certainly some where the votes were nowhere near 100%. The reason we had such unanimity is because we followed the patterns set forth in the New Testament for a unified church. We followed the template of Acts 15 and of the Jerusalem Council. It's because together as a church family, we took time to carefully plan for these important decisions. We prepared for them. We gave time for the people to provide input, advice. We gave time for questions. We listened to one another. We listened mutually. We sat silently and meditated on the things that we had heard and learned. We heard from elders. We heard from leaders. The people rose up to speak. And then there arose... A pleasing, spirit-led assent among the people. Not unlike what happened in Acts 15. And I'll tell you, I walked away from that meeting so happy and so joyful. I walked away fully understanding what the psalmist meant when he said in Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I walked away believing that as Jesus looked down from heaven that morning and as he witnessed how we conducted ourselves as a church family, I believe he turned to the Father and said, my prayer was answered this morning. My prayer was answered this morning. I prayed for you that you might be one, that you might be of one accord, of one mind, of one judgment, united in spirit, And you were. There wasn't one of you who wasn't. Coast Bible Church, I want to say, remember what that looked like. Because it's rare. Remember what it feels like to be united. Because we know what division feels like. Many of us know what it feels like to go through a schism or a split in one's family. We know what it feels like to go through Division in one's church family, they can be some of the most painful experiences of all time. And so let us pay heed to what the scriptures say about division and the warnings about it. And then let us welcome and embrace what the Bible says about unity. And let us be encouraged by the knowledge that we have unity now. We saw it on full display last Sunday. We endeavored to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one as we are one. And that's where we are now. Let's remain there. And let's wait with expectation for how God will now use that unity, not just for our own benefit, but as he said in, as Jesus said in John 17, that that unity would then begin to testify to the world around us that something is different about what is happening in this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, 
We thank you, God, for uh, the goal that you set before us to be united. Sadly, Lord, we often just pay lip service to it. And it is often the case in the church at large and even in our local church that unity is the furthest thing from the truth. But every once in a while, Lord, you grace us with your spirit in such a way that there is perfect harmony, perfect agreement. And so we know, Lord, that it's not just a pipe dream. We know that it can be done and that it is to be an aim of our church. So, Father, help us to go forward, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Help us to go forward, laying aside energy and passion for what is petty, some petty uh, committee decision. Instead, Lord, let us with full determination and with complete energy focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't make mountains out of molehills, but that we would endeavor to take the gospel, the most important thing of all, to the ends of the earth. May that be the impetus behind our unity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.